Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the ideas that shape us, and the humans behind the positions in our public conversations. Each episode, I speak to someone involved in public debates in some way, and I ask them about what they hold sacred and what they've learned about engaging across difference. In divided times, we hope that listening to a wide range of perspectives on religion, politics, identity, and more will help us grow in empathy. If you listen long enough, you should hear someone you disagree with, perhaps strongly, but I hope you'll also feel like you've deepened your understanding of those involved in shaping our common life. As always, please do rate, review and share the podcast. It really helps. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Ed West. Ed is a journalist and he's worked on Nuts magazine, The Catholic Herald, and as a columnist for The Telegraph and The Spectator. He's currently deputy editor at Unheard and the author of a recent book called Small Men on the Wrong Side of History about conservatism. I really hope you enjoy listening. Ed, you have not had enormous amount of warning about this question uh, due to an organisational blip, but I will ask you about what you hold sacred. And you can feel the space created by that hefty word, however you like. It's really a way of opening up early on, a little bit of space for self-reflection, a little bit of space to have a think about what are the deep principles that you've tried to live by. We try and bracket out, obviously, kind of family, those sort of obvious things that we'd all share. And one way of getting to it is that that kind of disgust response, that sense of Ugh, where you feel like you might be being compromised by something that often can get to um, something that we hold sacred. But really, you can take the conversational uh, baton and take it wherever you like. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Interesting question. I, I generally, I suppose as I got older, I've become more sensitive to that sort of sense of uh, disgust, um, which I think we all have in it. I mean, I suppose if it, it depends if there's something's on like an intrinsic like gut level or whether it's on a sort of higher principle. Um, I do very much believe in uh, not going out of one's way to insult you know, other people's traditions or other people's um, sacred values. And, I, and um, this can sound very boring in the middle of the road, but especially as, you know, it's more, we live in a more sort of globalised world, it's very easy to do that because there are so many different traditions we have to hold. And uh, I suppose in a sort of very wet way, my thing was just, I, I really dislike the way everyone is, is, a lot of people are very rude and think it's, and think it's clever. I think that's been very much influenced by the, the social media thing. Uh, which has sort of gotten worse, where uh, unkindness, uh, and especially if it's sort of people outside of your sort of in-group, is, is sort of so normalised. And it seems to have got so much worse this year, especially influenced by America, sort of almost normalisation of first sort of violent language against people, then violence against property, and I think inevitably violence um, against people. And so I have a very strong aversion to any... I suppose you would want... In, Early modern terms, we'd sort of call it enthusiasm. You know, that in that in the religious sense, I I very have a strong aversion to that. Um, so, yeah, I suppose moderation and and lightness would be my sacred values. I know that that sounds almost liberal democrat of me, doesn't it? I'd love to hear a bit about your childhood. Give a sense of what are the things that have formed you, particularly any big ideas, whether those are political or philosophical or religious. Kind of what was in the air when young Ed was running around? Um, well, I suppose 
firstly, I mean, I was very much a product of the Cold War, and um, that that was like a central thing going on because both my parents were journalists and they were involved with that in various ways. My, my dad was a foreign correspondent and been in been in Vietnam, and he was. In, I remember being Nicaragua when I was a child, and I mentioned that in the book. I suppose communism was this overwhelming, uh, I suppose, menace. I don't know, not menace in everyday life. I don't woke up think, as an eight-year-old worrying about communism. But, I mean, they did take me to East Germany, which is which was quite a weird thing to do. Um, so I was very, I suppose that that made me very aware from an early age that the modern world was not necessarily uh, better than the past. That, you know, communism come along and it replaced these old empires run by the Habsburgs and other people, and communism had made things a lot more worse. Uh, you know, it made the people poorer, maybe got unhappier, it had worse architecture. So I suppose that definitely influenced uh, my worldview. So I never, I never sort of grew up thinking everything always gets better and better. Um, so, yes, that was the first thing. And were your, were your parents, did they have kind of sympathies Towards communism, did they have some? You know, were they were they kind of politically peggable as well as journalists? My mum was a sort of former feminist who became uh, a sort of conservative Catholic uh, from Ireland, and she, I remember she was involved in these various Polish Catholic charities, which are obviously anti-communist. So there's a particular Polish aspect. My dad was a wasn't very communist when he was younger, but in a sort of public school way, he had become very reactionary, like madly reactionary by the time I was a kid, uh, like maddeningly so. Um, you know, sort of everything's better in the 14th century, blah, blah, blah. Democracy is a mistake. Uh, the Re- Reform Act was terrible. We should have Rotten Boroughs. Uh, although I didn't know if it was a joke or not. And I never knew of my dad. Everything was sort of half a joke. But no, he, was, he, thought, he thought communism was gen- generally very evil. Um, but he also didn't really like Thatcher's sort of brand of conservatism, which I didn't really understand as a child. He just, he thought, you know, this is, a, this is not really what conservatism is about. They're selling stuff off, you know, we should support railways. Um, you know, it's privatization. The market is not necessarily conservative, and uh, and these kind of things I didn't really think about as, as um, until I was much older. I suppose because I was brought up in the sort of the, that kind of Thatcherite worldview vaguely, and I sort of just assumed that was that was the way forward. And then everyone seems to be getting richer in the eighties, and in comparison, seventies sort of all seemed a bit you know sort of rubbish and run down. Um, and that was something that sort of challenged as I got older and realised it wasn't that simple. Um, but yeah, I suppose those, that, yeah, so it was a kind of slightly bohemian conservative uh, background, you know, very, my parents had all sorts of cranky friends and you know, royalists and people were in favour of bringing back all sorts of strange things. And, you know, we used to go to, when we went to St. Nathan Readers, there was, I mentioned in the book Father Charroux, who wanted Marie Antoinette canonised. He had this great campaign. He, he put his stamps upside down and was produced in France because he didn't recognise what he called the regicide state. So there's, you know, that was, um, yeah, quite, quite a reactionary, I suppose. Yeah. And like ma- many kind of teenagers growing up in that environment would react against that by, you know, becoming quite left wing or, you know, going to the opposite extreme. But from your book, it sounds like you never did that, that you've just been sort of solidly, strongly conservative leaning really all the way through. Pretty, yeah, pretty much so. I mean, I, I mentioned in the book that pe- I mean, I, I suppose I wasn't that political even as a teenager, but people who aren't political are basically default conservative. I mean, there's even research of people who don't consider themselves political, their values are basically the same as conservatives. So 
that is almost like the default state of people. Um, I suppose my parents are very, were very easy going with me. They didn't tell me to do anything really so much. That we were very relaxed as children. But um, I did, you know, I mentioned in the book I was influenced by the fact that I went to a school in central London and it was comprehensive. It was a good comprehensive that we can't, can't maintain. I think it was one of the top um, ones in London. But it was very much uh, a kind of Hobbesian world where there are, you know, a lot of rough kids in this school who would beat the hell out of me if they're given the chance. Um, but it was a very, very well-ordered and sort of slightly authoritarian school. Um, and it did very well on that. And, and this was a time in education. A lot of uh, schools at the time were the opposite. They were sort of experimenting with sort of radical ideas about child-centered education influenced by Rousseau. The school down the road was Holland Park Comprehensive. And that was, um, you know, there's a socialist Eton where kids could not wear uniforms and have to do homework and did as much work as they want to. And it, and it sort of ended in this, when I was there, that ended as a sort of, dystopian i mean it was like early 80s new york you know the warriors or something it was a sort of a t- terrifying nightmare place by all accounts uh and they sort of chased us down the road and everything but so i suppose that also influenced yeah my politics I... you know because fear sort of goes hand in hand with conservatism if you see the world as essentially a dangerous place i want to hear a bit more about catholicism and uh where that comes from in your family and kind of what was what what was the lived experience of it when you were young? What was the practice? How did you? I always sort of struck. I always feel awkward asking uh, about God, about the G bomb, more so than I think people's sex lives. But you know, how present was God to you as a child, if at all? So we raised as Catholics because uh, I don't know. I suppose it's just. I mean, there was partly because that the Catholic Church is more uh, forceful about that, but we weren't forced to um, go to church beyond quite an early age and um but i mean i just didn't really again i just didn't really understand i didn't really i mean i could understand but i didn't empathize with people who had this you know hugely strict religious upbringing where you know the the priest says everything it goes and you know i'm so scared of um god and the church and i want to rebel against it because it just it was never like that for me it was but it was already christianity was already quite a spent a weakened force um and I just never saw it as oppressive. I, 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 um, I mean, even as a teenager, I remember thinking I didn't really want to take part in this, but I can see it's, you know, it's good for other people. And um, I mean, that sounds really boring. <laughs> I just wish I could, you know, it'd be nice to be able to rebel, but I didn't really feel like oppressed by it in any. It was sort of in the background. It sounds like it was in the background. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem is, you know, the church we went to. Uh, I won't name it, but um, the, definitely the, the wider Catholic uh, church in England that we were a sort of part of was, you know, it was very much that very dour Irish Jansenist tradition, which was very, I find very off-putting. It seems to, it's a very sort of un, unjoyous religious experience. Um, and I know I always thought it has some of the worst aspects of both Catholicism and Protestantism. It's kind of Calvinistic and it's pessimism and it's, but it has terrible singing. Um, so you get just every aspect of that. And it, we just as children remember um, being bored and just looking around at all the old people who, and this sort of influenced my ideas about politics later, they were just so sanctimonious. And the whole it was like a competition to see who could be the most miserable and therefore the most pious um, among them. And I suppose as I got older, I felt that sanctimony, I sort of saw it in people's politics as well. And that sort of really put me off uh, the left even quite an early age. 
And I think that's probably happening a bit now more amongst particularly young men, especially in America. The whole, as we have now, as it becomes much, much more sanctimonious, uh, it's just really off-putting, people, uh, that feeling, um, being around people who sort of think they're morally better than you. Um, so, yeah, that, that definitely influenced my politics later. But, you know, we, we came from a mixed family, but, I mean, it was much more divided. The religious divide, you know, was much more about uh, ethnic divides, I think, you know, the Irish-English historical thing, but with a religious overlap as well. My religious beliefs have always been uh, sort of vague and, you know, I would like to say I was, you know, a strong believer, but they, I've always been philosophical and about it in the sense that I don't really have any choice in this matter and I don't think I'm ever going to know. But I do think this is, I mean, this sounds really cynical and, and people are going to hate it, but it's sort of Pascal's thing, you know, this is the right thing to do. Um, and when it comes down to it, I am a great, you know, I don't believe in revolutions, but I think the only successful revolution there has ever been is the Christian revolution. Uh, and this comes down to, you know, I'm, you know, you, Tom Holland's book about how Christianity changed things. And, you know, in my heart, I've always believed that's the right thing and that's changed us for the better. And, you know, if, if, if this uh, tells us something about ourselves as people, then that, I think this is a, a thing worth following. So, you know, I can't say I've, had some huge Damascene moment, but um, I do think it's it's a tradition with truth that I would like to sort of follow and and you know hopefully impart a little bit to my children. Although you know that is very hard in a in a very secular world. Yeah, it is. Yeah, the, that responsibility is one I really wrestle with. Um, so you had two journalist parents, and I think you also have a journalist brother. So it sounds like it was just a sort of an obvious path. One of the things I found funny looking at your um, CV is just the diversity of journalism jobs you've done. And there can't be many people in the country who has worked at both the Catholic Herald and Nuts magazine and written books related to both of those areas of um, thoughtfulness. Talk to me about that. What, you know, is that just different parts of yourself, different strands? What, What was the thread you were pulling on? Well, after university, I just did um, work. I just applied for work experience at different magazines, um, and the first one that came back was uh, it was the first one I did was Maxim, you know, another lads magazine. I mean, they're all closed now because crushed by the internet. But so I did that. So I started there, and I start. I ended up doing about five years in lads mags, um, rather than going in sort of you know newspapers conventionally. Which was, I mean, it was fun. It was fair. Very, I mean, I was the main one was nuts, which was sort of a massive thing at the time. Uh, which was, I mean, it was fun. It was very obvious. I mean, there's some lovely people there. I mean, the people who worked there were the absolute opposite of what you imagine. Uh, Lads, mag people were. They were all sort of very thoughtful, centre left English graduates who like listening, reading the Guardian, and wanted to work for the Guardian. And then, but it was all this. <laughs> We used to have this joke that, you know, the editor was this guy who feels really nice, you know, he likes jazz and drinking nice bottles of red wine. He had two children in his North London house home and he has to give us his talk about how we're all bloody blokes and it's all about being a bloke and having football and birds and stuff. And we used to just joke, a friend and I, that, you know, he, this is this, after this, he'd just come home at night and put his head in his hands and cry by the fire. And then years later, he wrote an article for The Independent and that was pretty much, we were bang on. Um, it was just, you know, it's me that everyone was sort of living a complete lie about um, what they're actually like, sort of selling their dreams to other people. That's terrifying, Ed. The sense of, if it's, is it, 
you know, how many of these outlets that are selling a real worldview and a, you know, a, a lifestyle is it, it's just enti- entirely fake. What do you think was driving it? Well, it's funny because the original um, men's magazines, the, we, we, we were in the same company as Loaded. Um, the monthly ones were really like that. And a lot of the writers were very hedonistic. In fact, a lot of them got into real trouble with drugs and stuff. Um, and they were quite rock and roll. But it's like everything, um, you know, sex. Once sex starts selling, it becomes commodified and companies get involved and marketing people become involved and becomes much more um, cynical. So... You know, nuts even started when I was there. I was very pleased. He said, oh, we won't have nipples because we want to have be, okay, it'll be, you know, it was almost sexist by, um, by today's standards. I say today, isn't it? 20 years ago. Um, but then it became more and more pornographic because the master people said, oh, you know, this is what young people like, this is what young men like. And, um, it just, it was kind of a good example of how, you know, if you do make things like this a commodity, then the market will inevitably push them in a more extreme direction because, to make more money um and it would also become false uh so it wasn't i mean strangely because uh, like lots of people it wasn't really my scene at all and uh i think i left there when i was 25 yeah to go freelance and for a bit and then uh, was i 27 yeah so that was i mean it just seems it's such a strange because culture's shifted so much uh and so much of the content now and so much of the culture of even the early 20s would be so unacceptable uh, even 10 years later, huge difference in culture. Yeah. And how much, obviously, I mean, you might have been oblivious to it, but I can't help but pop psychologize you in terms of, you know, you left Nuts magazine and a particular culture. And then a few years later, you were married with children and joining the Conservative Party. How, how, you know, did, were you, was there an internal struggle around it? Were you uncomfortable? Are there things you regret or it, it, was it kind of sliding off you? No, I didn't. I, I felt comfortable, and I regret it really. Um, I think loads of people would do that. I just, um, I, it's, um, yeah, because it was quite squalid, and it was quite common for people who worked there in those places to write afterwards about, oh, I'm told so, you know, we're, we're exploiting women, and um, and we were definitely. I mean, we were exploiting people who thought they were going to get into an industry where they will be, you know, the next Jordan or whoever it is, and most, you know, the vast majority don't. But, you know, ironically, that's quite similar to journalism. And um, it was a very, very, you know, a lot of people have fallen out of the industry because it's just collapsed, basically. Yeah. Let's, t- let's talk about conservatism because your book is very much uh, a very, s- it's a sort of part memoir but, and also part self-deprecating defense of conservatism and its ideas. And it, I often ask people when we're talking about whatever, um, you know, position they're coming from, you know, what is it that you wish other people understood, whether that's you know, about race or uh, Christianity or Islam or uh, you know, trans issues or whatever it is. And it feels to me like you've written a whole book trying to, trying to kind of explain what it is that you as a conservative believe with a very careful ear for all of the misconceptions and the preconceptions about it and the sort of cultural gloss of progressivism. But what really stuck out to me is I don't think till I read it, I would have been able to define exactly what conservatism is as opposed to neoliberalism or free market economics or traditionalism or orthodoxy or all these kind of adjacent things. And one of the things you say is that it's a good pitch with bad messengers. I'd love you to just say, what, what is the pitch? How do you define it? 
I mean, I mentioned this, but one of the reasons there's no stand-up comedians who are conservative, or very few, is that the message is very hard to get in a soundbite, and it's very, it's kind of counterintuitive, so it's not immediately obvious. But I suppose uh, one would define it as, I mean, it's a particular vision of uh, human nature. I mean, so uh, it, it's the, the idea that humans are um, limited. Humans are naturally flawed people, um, so... Any kind of political system that assumes humans are naturally good is going to uh, end up causing more misery. And it's very, and that sounds like a very depressive and sort of, you know, misanthropic vision, but it's not saying humans are bad. In fact, it's, you can even say the vast majority of humans are good, but it takes only a very small number of bad people to make life a misery for everyone. So you have to recognize that. So, you know, I mentioned Rousseau, who I think is, you know, the wrongest person in history, because I thought he he's, vision his ideas were very common especially when i was growing up that you know humans are sort of naturally good and it's without it's any institutions that make us um uh you know behave in this monstrous way but i mean conservatism is is the opposite idea and it's, it's institutions in fact that make life bearable for us and conservatism you know the the original you know, is a french word and in the context of france and england it meant people who supported the, the church and the crown uh, and obviously, in the American interpretation, that's slightly different because there's no, no there's no church and no crown. But um, it means supporting uh, existing institutions uh, because um, through them you have sort of legitimacy, and then you, through legitimacy you have law, and you have and that's a moderating uh, influence on people, and that's. Um, and, and basically, you know, institutions, the limits of people's behavior, uh, it would also be a certain parochialism. It's of, conservatism is anti, is against universalism in the sense that, you know, the, the liberal idea is that, you know, we are the world, going back to Thomas Paine, that, you know, all people can basically uh, live under the same system, all people can have this new sort of, you know, uh, modern framework of government be fine. Well, the conservatives would say, actually, Different people, because of their historical traditions, something might work in one country, something might work in another. I mean, that's why in, in, in recent times, you know, the Iraq war was probably like the most insanely unconservative thing in principle. Um, you know, sort of tear up institutions without knowing what will replace them. Um, there is also conservatism is naturally inclined towards the familiar and the local as opposed to universal. So it's okay to uh, favor family members it's okay to favor your own compatriots over other people it doesn't mean you hate the, the local the other people it's um that's a sort of natural human um i guess it's an instinct against the kind of universalizing yeah so um, you know, it's yeah it's it's good i mean like you know conservatives say nation state is good it's good to be patriotic um it's good to favor your own country against others you know in preference then maybe there's nothing wrong with that um and that's obviously come under particular uh, sort of disfavor in recent years it seems either immoral in one sense or just sort of you know I refer to these these ideas being sort of low status so if you want to signal how uh, clever or educated you are you sort of denigrate your country to show that you travel the world and you know you're very open-minded educated people but I, I think there's nothing wrong there's nothing wrong with that to be um, to love your country or or to want to put it first um, there's also a theme I think that came out about a kind of orientation 
in time, which you really helped me understand. And you quote Roger Scruton saying, conservatism is the politics of delay. And then someone else whose name I can't remember, which was that standing athwart history shouting stop. It's the sort of the opposite of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, isn't it? It's looking back and saying that things that have stood the test of time have legitimacy and not assuming that we know more than people in the past or we're better people than people in the past and therefore we can build a build a better world. And that seems yeah. to me to be really fundamental because the it's so deeply imbued in our imagination, this sense of progress towards something better, whether that's kind of technological progress or industrialization or a Christian understanding of telos, that it is actually quite a radical counterintuitive position to say no, the past was better. Yeah, well they just there are, you know, there is if something is yeah, there's the argument if something's stood the test of time, then that's a sort of proof in itself. There is and before you go around changing it. Um and obviously, you know, the twentieth century was sort of less less than now. There are all sorts of radical ideas to start anew and in most cases they caused uh huge amounts of misery. So yeah, you know, sort of so liberals believe in freedom and um, socialists believe in inequality, and I suppose conservatives would uh, would want limits on both of those to some extent as well. That was another thing. Um, I suppose conservatives don't really believe in human equality, and that that also sounds really appalling since it's become a sort of sacred value now. Um, another thing which makes us sound, you know, very unpopular in the modern world, unintelligent. Why do you not believe in human equality? Like unpack it for me because you're right. It's it it lands badly, and I want to understand the best form of that argument. I mean, we don't believe in equality of outcomes. It's just uh, human uh, conservatives just believe uh, naturally that that's just impossible to require because people have different um, people have different different abilities, different inclinations, um, and the sort of the pursuit of equality of outcomes is. Uh, has that it is a sort of from a milder version of that sort of utop- utopian tradition of let's sort of try to fix society so it seems fair when the conservatives just say, well, you know, life is unfair. Some people are sort of, you know, born either better looking or whatever or smarter or um, all these other unfair things and you have to sort of find comfort in the fact that, you know, it's never going to be achieved. Yeah, it, 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 it felt to me, it was a really helpful picture because it felt to me... And I come to the conclusion about a lot of things on this, whether it's kind of theological leanings or aesthetic preferences, that much more is down to temperament than we like to think. You know, much, that, that of course we're rational beings, of course we're looking at evidence and arguments a bit, but um, actually sometimes it's just the things that we're temperamentally drawn to, which you clearly are. Tell me, I often ask religious believers if they've had a crisis of faith. I want to ask you, you know, has your conservatism ever had a crisis of faith, not least because you're quite funny on how this has a, um, there's a social stigma about being conservative, at least where you live and in, in journalism and, and in the kind of circles you've been in. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, Brexit, basically. I mean, um, yeah, uh, I thought Brexit was a little bit because I thought it was, uh, it was the first big moment when I was, I was a, a supporter and then uh, I sort of worked for a, a Leave MP and I read a l- loads and loads about the subject um, to a huge degree, um, to a sort of tedious degree. And I realised actually I was in that sort of sweet spot or the opposite of the sweet spot, which uh, was Uncanny Valley, where I knew a lot about a subject which made me sort of dangerously knowledgeable but without knowing enough that I could actually see the details of it. And I came away thinking this is going to be 
really complex and, and quite a bad thing overall. Um, so yeah, that was the that was an issue. I just thought actually we've got it wrong here. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I think I would a big issue. That was sort of a big conservative crisis faith, and that sort of comes towards the end of the story really because I mean that's where it wraps up, and it's sort of ongoing, isn't it? I mean, it's going to go on forever probably. Yeah. But it's also thing to actually. Um, I mean, it has sort of. It does actually have a. It's almost like a. It has a biological hormonal effect on you when you, um, you know, wake up, realize actually I might have got something massively wrong, and my entire belief system based on this is probably flawed. Uh, it's not like a joyful thing. It's the opposite. Uh, it's kind of like a sinking feeling. You think, oh, God. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe that will turn out all, all right in the end, but. It's um, but I don't know. Maybe people, everyone should have like a crisis of faith, right? I mean, maybe it's a, maybe it's a healthy thing. Maybe it's a good thing. It's a, yeah. It's, it makes you grow as a person. Yeah, I mean, you have to have an open mind in order to let that happen. I think. Um, and your the argument you're making is that even though you know Boris Johnson won, won the last election on an absolute landslide, that the trajectory the direction of travel of our culture is to kind of greater and greater progressivism and you talk about the kind of cultural capture of of major institutions and and this sense in which you know anyone who's smart anyone who's informed anyone who's kind will of course be progressive will of course be on the left um how just kind of narrate how that's come about where do you think that come from and why you still think that's the case given that a lot of people feel like maybe the pendulum's swinging back the other way uh, well, it's, I mean, young, you know, partly if you just look at elections now, um, young people, you know, young people did used to vote for conservative and now in overwhelming numbers, they vote for left-wing parties, but that's the very young amongst people sort of my age, um, you know, I'm early forties now, about 10 years earlier, they would massively move to the right by this stage because you have kids and you move to the suburbs and you, you know, become a grumpy middle-aged man and whatever um that generational shift has not really happened uh either in britain or america amongst those born from the late 1970s early 80s there's people now still identifying as being on the left um whether it's you know radical left or sort of center left um there is a sort of an actual change going on people um educated people born after a certain year really find conservatism um really repulsive. I mean, and it is a class thing. It is, you know, people from the professions used to be very um, mixed and now they are overwhelmingly left of sense. You know, we think of academia as being a sort of, you know, it's obviously left wing thing, but in the 60s, it, you know, 35% of academics in Britain voted Tory, that similar number voted Republican. And now, you know, it's something like 10 or 15 to one. And the mo- amongst the right wing ones, would be, they would be much older. So the people coming in to replace them overwhelmingly left, I mean overwhelmingly left wing and um and in social sciences you know vast uh, gap I mean Harvard did their least data study it said one percent of their academics I think are Republicans now so um but it's not just academia in teaching um in medicine medicine at least in the states used to be very right-leaning profession now it's overwhelmingly left-leaning and, you know science overwhelmingly it's, it's become in all these professions um there has become a sort of left-wing dominance. And so all the major institutions, you know, the sort of like the deep state, you might want to call it, who sort of run Britain, um, even if the Tories come into power, they're still overwhelmingly run by um, people on the left. So 
I mean, this was when, when the book was first, you know, first pitched. A couple of publishers who turned down said, "Oh no, you can't do that." You know, what about Trump's in power and you know Brexit? Um, but you know, Brexit is a very, very much done supported by older people. Uh, young people, you know, as some remainers have gleefully said, uh, similar thing, Trump voters, I mean, Trump didn't win the majority, but, you know, his voters tend to be older and poorer. Uh, and, you know, just styles and fashions tend to come from above, you know, historically. So, I mean, I, I use the historical analogy of religions, you know, religions that are practiced by dominant sort of overclasses in societies become adopted by everyone eventually because everyone wants to follow the, the people above them. Um, and that's happened in, you know, lots of, you know, so the historically Protestantism in England starts off as very much a minority and educated elite minority pursuits. And, you know, within a couple of generations, it become the overwhelming majority religion and Catholicism was just practiced by uh, a few aristos and um, the rural people in, in remote areas. And that's the sort of trajectory that the right is going. And I do also, you know, mention the biggest factor, which is religion. We you know when religion declines, politics becomes religion. So the sort of liberal left has become the replacement um, religion for people. So, you know, people need a moral anchor. Um, and where it once would have been the churches, now it's, it's uh, sort of the left, basically. So if you meet someone under 45 and they're not, and they're sort of a very sort of decent, compassionate person, and if they're not religious, you can pretty much guess they're going to be the left. If they're, if they're religious, it could go either way, but probably more likely to be on the right. Uh, there's so much I want to talk to you about that because we have kind of fascinating sets of data around that, but I'm going to park it for the, um, for the sake of time. And because the theme that really struck with me is the way you, you unpack the way the class allegiances have really shifted. That, you know, if we think of Labour emerging out of a, a working class movement, a very much non-elite, those disenfranchised from power and conservatism tending to be those who had a st the stake in institutions, you know, who had assets for whom st stability was really, um, you know, for, for obvious and um, understandable reasons, more attractive. But we've seen this massive flip and really quite recently, I think, from, um, and, and we still use the language as if, you know, the, the elites or the institutions are on the right. But your argument is that you're seeing a much more working class conservatism emerging and a much more elite progressivism sort of taking yeah. the place of that working class. What do you think the, what, one, why do you think that's happened? And two, what do you think the effects of it are on the way we engage across these differences? Um, I think, you know, I mean, it's, it's known as the great realignment. That's the thing. And it's, it started, it started in the States slightly earlier, starting in the 60s. Uh, and that's when you first get the sort of populist language on the right about coastal elites. Um, I mean, in the Britain, it, it also in the 60s is a bit of a shift. So British class politics in 1945, the overwhelming majority of working class people voted Labour and the overwhelming majority of middle class people voted Tory. It was very much in class lines. Um, and that shifted quite a lot uh, in the late 60s, the permissive society. Um, so more you know, liberal middle class people went to the left and vice versa. But it's only recently, yes, in the last two elections, it's actually the Tories have won the majority of working class voters. Um, it, it's sort of, I think, I mean, it's a reversion to pre-industrial politics, um, which makes sort of more sense. You know, in the, the industrial era, as you say, it's, you have sort of big class reasons to go along. But before then, you know, we had a, a liberal merchant um, left, the Whigs, 
who were supported by the you know very urban and um were you know the liberal party's forerunners and then you had the sort of more rural based um Tories who were more conservative and actually much more popular, more popular amongst you know outside the cities, and so that's kind of a reversion to that norm, which sort of is historically makes more sense because um, people in cities are more liberal, uh, and that's found everywhere really. Um, the the more urban density you have, the more liberal people's values are, just because it's a sort of adaptation. Um, so where the left goes, it's different. It's difficult to know because it's a sort of alliance between liberals who you know aren't particularly big on redistribution and taxes and sort of more radicals. So there's sort of two blocks. Um, at the moment, you know, the left has done badly because they can't unite those sort of two blocks in one in one party. They've always had trouble, uh, and that's partly because of sort of the. And this again is where you know I think the left is more like religion. The the need for purity. Amongst, you know, they need to be much more creedal, and that's why the left, you know, is finding it more difficult to sort of make these alliances between people because you know you need to follow the creed, otherwise you're not really, you know, one of us. Um, but you know, that might change. They might be able to, you know, reform and, and win the next election. Who knows? Um, I want to. Uh, I tend to ask guests to share what they've learnt about engaging across the differences that they, you know, the kind of fault lines that they sit on, and. You're very funny about going to North London dinner parties. I mean, I think it's particularly interesting for you as a conservative living um, and working in very liberal environments. And I get the impression that a lot of the time you just kept very quiet about what you believe politically. But where you have engaged um, and you've had these conversations across differences, what has helped? And if there's one thing you would like those who are liberal or progressive to understand about conservatism that you think they repeatedly get wrong, what would that be? Um, I think people, I think the one thing people, and I mean, this is, this is what Jonathan Haidt found in their surveys that most, uh, liberals, people who identify as very liberal, don't understand that conservatives, you know, have the same beliefs and values as them. I mean, they share almost all their values. Um, you know, so the, the classic one was that people with very liberal ideas misunderstood that most conservatives, the overwhelming conservatives, would strongly object to being cruel to defenseless animals. And I obviously we would. Um, but because just because something might not be a priority or because it might be countered um, by some other uh, factor, it doesn't mean it's, you know, important. So, you know, all, all the... Basically, if you, you know, if you think that something is a social problem and you're left, most conservatives will agree with you, but they, they will either find it... An, a social problem that can't be fixed, or um, it will there will be a sort of unintended consequence of dealing with it, such as such, or it will counter against some other social value. And you know, and the best policy comes about from accepting that there are no solutions; there are only two, you know, bad outcomes, and you have to sort of find which is the least bad. Uh, that's on on a sort of very basic level. I mean, you know. It, I don't want to generalize because lots of people, um, lots of people do understand the conservative mindset. And, you know, some people just have, have different values. So I, I know I'm not trying to necessarily say to someone, you know, you're, you're wrong. Um, I mean, I suppose partly it's just saying, listen, just at least understand where we're coming from. It doesn't mean we're evil. I mean, some of us are evil. Um, but we just, you know, see the world in a different, in a different way to you. And I, I think it's part of the, problem with 
I don't know, modern living is that it's e- much easier now to to go about your life and, and never really meeting anyone who, who's that different to you. I mean, you know, I take an example of, you know, where my mum lives in a town of 20,000 people. All the people she knows come from very different backgrounds. They have very different political views. They have different education levels because it's just a, that's who you live with. You've got no choice. And that's how it's been for most people. Now, people are much more likely to be, you know, I would, I amazingly live in this diverse city with 20 different restaurants, cuisines, people from all over the world. But all your neighbours have exactly the same education levels. They all have exactly the same political views as you. I mean, they are, they've all been selected in that way. So it's much easier to, you know, never meet anyone who differs from you in, in any sort of fundamental, significant or interesting way. Um, and I suppose that's, um, that is partly who the book's aimed at. Thanks, Ed. That is a good summing up of why I love having these conversations because I learned such a lot about um, myself as well as uh, the people that I'm listening to. Ed, thank you so much for talking to me on The Sacred. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Soup Shop Productions and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.